Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Welcome to The Last Wicket. I'm your host, Benny. Happy New Year, and thank you for tuning in. Folks, it is hard to believe that in a few weeks, The Last Wicket podcast will be entering its third year. In that time span, we've had plenty of memorable guests and insightful conversations, all of which we plan to continue in 2023. So if you're a longtime listener, thank you. Thank you for your patience with the infrequent episodes over the last few months, and we plan to continue prioritizing quality over quantity this year. Now, if you're a first-time listener, welcome. Please do check out our previous episodes, either on the podcast app or at thelastwicket.com. I promise you will not regret it. All right, let's get to our first guest of 2023. So we at The Last Wicket like to check in with our counterparts from other countries from time to time. So our first stop is Pakistan specifically Pakistan cricket. In 2022, basketball was the only thing more eventful in the cricket world. Both on and off the field, Pakistan ensured they were in the news one way or the other. So to make sense of it all, we had Asit Jafar, aka at Cover Drive Crick, from the Cover Drive podcast. We spoke with Asit about Pakistan's recent struggles in test cricket, the roller coaster experience that is being a Pakistan fan, return of Sarfraz Ahmed and Shahid Afridi, and of course, the epic duel between Ramiz Raja and Najam Sethi. Now, we talked about all that and more, so do keep listening for a fun conversation with Asid Jafar. So Asid, there are so many things that we want to talk about with you, but I want to primarily, well, I want to lead off with you know, the the game that ended in Karachi just a few hours ago, um, a thrilling finish. Obviously, Sarfraz Ahmed uh, is in the news. And I kind of wanted to start off with your immediate reaction to it. Obviously, once, you know, in the coming days and weeks, once emotions have settled, you'll probably be able to take a more objective look at Pakistan Test Cricket and 
where it is and all of that. But um, I know there's already been a lot of chatter over, you know, if the game should have continued, if the Empire should have just let it continue, because it seemed like both captains wanted it uh, to go on and to get a result out of it. But what are your immediate thoughts and uh, what is your reaction to the finish? Um, yeah, so in terms of objectivity, I think when you're a Pakistan cricket fan, uh, to be 100% objective is next to impossible considering the emotional <laughs> roller coaster these guys take you on. Now, yeah. by the end of this game, I'd gotten to the point where when Naseem Shah started, like, hit that six over, uh, hit that six over cover and then got another boundary. And I'm like, I literally uh, messaged my fr- group chat with my friends and I'm like, why are they doing this? We know how this is going to end. I've seen this before. <laughs> we're going to get really close and then we're going to lose that 10th wicket. Now, bad light might have prevented that. We might have gone all the way. And on that note, we we as cricket fans often think about why test cricket isn't getting that sort of uh, audience that we wanted to. Now, in 2023, why are we still ending test matches due to bad light? There are floodlights at every major test venue in the world. You had three overs to go. You had 15 runs to go. Either we were going to lose that 10th wicket either or we were going right. to score those 15 runs. Now, that could have ended badly. And I might have been sitting... If, if we would have lost, I might have been sitting here and been like, oh, no, it was bad light. We should have ended it. But <laughs> it, since it was a draw, I can think a bit more objectively and be like, for the sake of the game, just, just see it off. You, you had like three more overs to go. You had the floodlights on. Like, why, why does this still happen? And this is where cricket just is so far behind other sports and it gets frustrating at times because I, I woke up at like 5 a.m. to catch that last session and I was like, did I really just did I really just wake, wake up on 5 a.m. on a Friday uh, to watch a test match end due to bad light? But yeah, yeah that's, that's a sidebar. Uh, looking at Pakistan, I think they dragged this much deeper than anyone expected. Uh, like when I woke up, I just checked the score and I was like, what, we're still playing, we're not allowed yet. Okay, let's tune in and watch because I fully expected us to be done by that point. Um, I think Pakistan will be happy with how this ended. Obviously, probably the worst home test season I've seen Pakistan play and I've been watching Pakistan cricket for about 18 18 years now, yeah. I think this is the worst ever home season I've ever seen us play. Um, The sooner we can forget about it, the better. Um, lots to look on on the drawing board. There's a lot of decisions that need to be made, long-term decisions to be made. We made a few short-sighted decisions going into this series, and I hope that's not the case going into the next cycle. And obviously, um, this was a missed opportunity. It was our best chance to um, win, to get to a Test Championship final, in my opinion. The next, so the yeah. next cycle has away tours in both South Africa and Australia, so I don't know how much hope you can really hold out over there. Look, Pakistan doesn't have any other test matches till next year. Is that right? Uh, we have we have a series in Sri Lanka in July, I believe. Well, I think it was home test. I, I, I read something about... Home tests, maybe. yeah. We don't have any more home tests this year. Okay, got it, got it. Well, you know, also, <laughs> you know what? I, I'll tell you one thing, though, because I remember having this feeling, um, I think it was last year when India played Australia at the GABA, um, now everybody remembers that iconic finish, you know, Rishabh Pant hitting the winning runs. But for most of that last day, I remember thinking, okay, let's just 
you know, we've, we've done well, we've exceeded expectations. Let's just play out a nice draw because, you know, much like you as an Indian, for me as an Indian cricket fan, I've lived through some really scarring times, you know, when India have lost close games and it's got smashed, absolutely smashed at overseas games. Um, and for me, the prospect of just drawing a, uh, at the Gabba, you know, that was like, oh, I would have taken that, especially considering all the injuries then. And as a fan, you know, that was my instinct. But when India did eventually win, I, I can't describe that feeling. It's it's the kind of feeling that sports fans live for. You know, that feeling of like, wow, that was that actually happened. You know, so I, I think as as sports fans and, you know, I you would rather be so emotionally be involved and feel something, even if that involves, you know, like losing at the end. So I think, you know, for you, um, that game, and I think for any cricket fan, really, we would rather want those kind of finishes as much as, you know, <laughs> it seems to be stressful. Um but anyway, I, I think, yeah, that was a very exciting finish. Uh, obviously, Sarfra has made it such a strong return after all of the, you know, all the questions over what should he have returned in place of Rizwan. So I think he answered those questions. But you kind of briefly talked about, you know, the worst home season um, for Pakistan. But let's talk about the whole WTC cycle, because like you said, this seemed like a very good opportunity for Pakistan to make it to the final. Um, so where, where do you think it went wrong over the course of the, this WTC cycle for Pakistan? Because they seem to have the players, they seem to have the you know, players for the series, the, for, for the, uh, for the opposition playing at home, a lot of players, you know, the pace attack, uh, good batsmen. So where do you think it went wrong? Um, now I think there's a lot of different factors going into this, um, when we looked at Pakistan's uh, WTC cycle, they couldn't have asked for anything better. Your away tours were against the West Indies, against Sri Lanka, against Bangladesh, and your home your home your home cycle was against Australia, England, and New Zealand. And now, if you want to play those teams in a WTC cycle, you want to play them at home because historically they struggle in Asia. So it all it all looked like it was going well for us. Uh, and I will get into the home side of things uh, later. But I think we started off with a bit of a hiccup, losing that one test in West Indies. Uh, there was obviously the drop catch. And uh, then West Indies pulled off that chase. Um, if we could have uh, sweeped that series, that would have been a strong start. But again, that was just like a minor hiccup at the start. You could you had the whole cycle ahead of you to recover at that point, And you did mm-hmm. uh, win the test matches in Bangladesh. Um if we look at uh, Pakistan's test form in 2021, uh, you had that win against South Africa at home where everything seemed to be falling in place because before that is when we had the series in New Zealand where we did not do well at all. Um, and then there was a couple of changes. Hassan Ali made us come back. Uh, Fawad Alam had established himself in the team. And I think these are some of the factors uh, that start coming in. Number one being Fawad Alam's decline in form. Because um, in 2021, throughout that brilliant run and tests for Pakistan, um, our top order, the top three, top four, even top four at times, like Babur took a bit of time to kind of find his groove that year. Um, and the, the 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 openers were not doing anything at all. Uh, Abid Ali and Imran Butt were the openers for a good chunk of that. Abdullah Shafiq came in 
uh, during the Bangladesh cycle, Bangladesh series, and that's when things took the turn for the better in terms of her opening pair. But Fawad Alam was consistently scoring. He had four centuries in that year, uh, all crucial centuries, a couple of them coming after like major collapses. I remember against West Indies, we were like two for three, something along those lines. Uh, it was pretty bad, and he came in and he scored a century, and we um, and we kind of uh, turned that game around. Uh, similarly, Rizwan. Rizwan was very crucial to us, uh, scoring a couple of really brilliant knocks, but then heading into 2022, he did suffer a bit of a dip in form. Uh, his Him getting dropped is a whole other discussion. I'm sure we'll get to that later on. Uh, it's not something I particularly agree with, but uh, yeah, obviously we can discuss that. Um, so And also with Rizwan, there was a constant, like, for some reason, they felt the need to shuffle around with his position this year. He was doing perfectly fine at number six, number seven, depending on whether uh, on what the team composition was looking like. Um, but in Sri Lanka, we saw the first test he played at five. And then the second test, when that didn't work, we decided, oh, let's play him at four. Even more brilliant idea. Let's move him up one more. Um, now, when you're a wicketkeeper in tests, you're, you're out there keeping for 90 to 100 overs per day, uh, not per day, sorry, like across the innings. Um, and then to expect him to come up with the order for, now I know Rishabh Pant comes up uh, up the order for India, but like you're not going to get that, right? Like different players, it's, it, it's some players are just able to do it, some players aren't. Most wicket keepers aren't, like if you look across the board. Um, so just messing around with his position, I think really damaged his, uh, his year. And then you have the Pacers. Obviously, you had the entry to Shaheen uh, this year. And more overarching across the home season has been the loss of form of Hassan Ali. Um, and I think the one of the, the two biggest factors here, sorry, I am going a bit uh, longer than I would like on this one. That's but, fine. Um, getting rid of Mispah Ulhaq as the head coach. Now, Mispah had a lot of flaws as a white ball head coach, which... Uh, which I think a lot of his, even of even some of his uh, biggest fans, including myself, would agree that he was flawed as a white ball head coach. But in red ball, he was notorious as a captain for making the most out of nothing. Uh, if we looked at the bowling attacks he had during this time in the UAE, uh, obviously he ha- you had your Yasser Shahs and your Saeed Ajmals, but then the accompanying pace attack was nothing the, compared to the great Pakistani base attacks, but he still made something out of nothing. And he was doing the same here, albeit in reverse. Over here, he had the good pacers, but he was using um, seasoned veterans from the domestic system like Noman Ali. And he got a, he got a fifer out of Noman in his, uh, in his debut test series. So, and there was a, and then there was the aspect of Babar Azam's inexperience as a captain. And I think Mispa was covering a big deal for that. Tactically, he was compensating for Babar's uh, inexperience. And the moment he got pushed out of the picture, Saklan came in. Saklan was pretty much a hands-off coach. He was only there to like, uh, sort of be a yes man and let Babar run everything. But if I, if this cycle has shown anything, it shows Babar doesn't have that captaincy acumen to be able to unilaterally run a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, the pitches. Uh, the home season pitches have been an absolute disaster. You were after after two thousand twenty one. Everyone knew Pakistan's. Uh, strength after a long time, like we we didn't have this for a while, but our 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 our, our pace attack had once again become our strength. Uh, Shaheen Shah, Afridi, Nasim Shah, Hassan Ali, uh, even Mohammad Abbas. When you go into the Sena conditions, like if you go uh, if you go to like certain countries, he's very useful, uh, especially in England. Maybe not as much as in Australia, but in England, he's 
the perfect bowler to have your team. And uh, we decided to either make absolute roads or attempt to make turning pitches, which aren't against popular belief. I know a lot of the teams that come in, like England came in and Australia came in, oh, the, the pitches in Pakistan turn a lot. I'm like, no, they don't. They've never turned. We've never had turning wickets. Like we've had like, okay, we will have like your pitches that obviously on day four and day five will turn, but they're nothing like what you find in Sri Lanka or India. So, or Bangladesh right. as well. So yeah, that's just a couple of the things. I, I'm sure we can dive into some of them in more detail, but just over the top. So it's interesting. You, you've obviously mentioned a lot of points and we'll we'll unpack all of them, but let's start with the fast bowling. So one of the things that Jared Kimber recently wrote about in, in Pakistan's you know WTC performance was how they've just rotated a number of different bowlers whenever they're available, whenever they seem to be in form, um, without there being a proper approach to how to manage their workload, how to you know say who's number. I mean, I think it's clear Shaheen is number one as long as he's available, but who's number two? Who's you know deputy and and you know that sort of role definition who's the first change bowler, things like that. That hasn't really happened. Um, would you agree with that? And and where do you see like the top three or four fast bowlers? Who do you see them being in the next few years? I totally agree. Um, role definitions has been an issue, not only in tests, but across other the other formats, especially T20s as well. Um, and yeah, uh, as you pointed out, Jared's, uh, Jared's article, and this has been an issue with Pakistan. Like, if you think about it, for a country renowned for producing fast bowlers, and we do produce fast bowlers, but we haven't had a single test bowler who's taken 200 wickets, wickets since Wakar Yunus. Now, Wakar Yunus played in a time where I didn't even watch Pakistan cricket. So that just tells you how long it's been. Um, and the biggest issue has been anytime we have come across a good bowler, we've absolutely run them into the ground and uh, ended up with bowlers who have chronic knee issues, shoulder issues, back issues. You had Mohamed Abbas who had an injury, played through it, lost a couple of cases of pace, isn't the same. You had Junaid Khan whose knee, not uh, who who was doing really well early on in the twenty uh, from twenty thirteen onwards, twenty twelve onwards. Uh, he got an injury which was mismanaged again out of the scene. Um, Wahab Riaz. Uh, did play a bit, uh, did play a decent chunk during that UAE era, but he decided to step away around 2019 uh, to focus on white ball. Mohamed Amir, uh, again, decided to step away, but in his case as well, I would I would like to point out, like, I, I'm not a huge fan of what Amir says and does nowadays, but his injuries were also, he was also mismanaged uh, workload-wise when he came back, immediately throwing him into three formats after a five-year layoff. We saw the impact that had after, like, I think two years into his comeback, his pace had gone down at least five to 10 Ks. Um, and workload management is the biggest issue here. Now, Pakistan's biggest issue is when they get a good bowler, we want to make him play T20s. We want to make him play tests. We want to make him play ODIs. And we want to make, make him play every single bilateral T20. And this is one of my biggest pet peeves where I'm like, I don't think anyone takes bilateral T20s as seriously as we do. Like we need to make, like we play our full strength 11 every single time. And this is after a long time, Pakistan has a lot of depth in their white ball bowling, especially you. If you look at your white ball bowling setup, you have Shaheen, Naseem, and Rauf, who are your front line. Now, if I set them aside, your backups are Hasnan, Wasim Jr., Dahani, and so on. So you have a good ton of depth. And when Shaheen was injured, one of the biggest plus points was that it highlighted your depth, that it is good enough. So you don't need to play the likes of Shaheen and Naseem and so on in every single 
bilateral that comes along. Um, when we look at 2021, Hassan Ali was the main partner in crime with uh, with Shaheen. He had 41 wickets at an average of 16.1. Now that's by any account a freaks freak year to have. And then you go into 2022, he has five wickets at 67.4. Now, I don't care even if it's a one season. You can, you can't call it a we can't you can't call him a one season wonder because he's had similar seasons before. Even pre twenty nineteen, he had he was doing really well. His average was like middling twenties, uh, something like that. Um, and he suffered again. His workload wasn't managed. He was taken to the twenty nineteen World Cup with a back injury, and we saw how badly he performed there. Disappeared off the circuit for a bit, came back, and we saw what he did in twenty twenty one, and then. In 2021, where things really started to go off the rails for him was the, the was the T20 World Cup in the UAE. Um, just prior to that was the domestic competition, the National T20, where he pulled up uh, while playing for his domestic seed team, Central uh, Central Punjab, and he continued, which was very dumb because it's a domestic tournament. You don't need to like risk your ace bowler on that. Um, and you could notice in the World Cup that he wasn't running in quite as hard. His pace had dropped a few notches. And obviously, he had that dropped catch in the semifinal, which is going to have a psychological impact on any player. Um, now, the smart move after that would have been to rest Hassan Ali and let him just, like, you know, recharge. But no, we took him to Bangladesh. We played him in those T20Is, which no one cared about. Uh, we played him in the... T- and he had a terrible performance in those. Then we played him in the tests, and he took a fifer. So now when I look at that, I look at Hassan Ali and I think, you know what? I have all these young bowlers coming through in white ball. Maybe we make him focus on tests. And this is where Pakistan's really struggled. Now, when you look at a team like India, they, they've picked out guys like Umesh Yadav, like Ishan Sharma, who have solely focused on being red ball pacers for India. Pakistan hasn't done that. We've been stuck in this whole cycle of like all format bowlers, which I don't think is manageable with the workload that cricketers face today, franchise cricket international D20s, ODIs, tests, and so on. Um, you look at Harris Rauf. He's your premier wide ball bowler, one of the best dead bowlers in the world. And they try to rush him into tests. And he's played, I think, seven to eight first-class matches. He played his first first-class match at the age of about 25, 26. Now, when you haven't been through that uh, whole cycle of first-class cricket properly, especially at this point of your career, uh, I think it's really hard to develop that fitness. Like... Uh, but we try to do it anyways, and obviously he pulled up injured. Um, now, when you asked me about players who we should be maybe looking at, um, now I think looking at the domestic system, uh, I already named the the depth in white ball, but when we look at test cricket, there's uh, Mohamed Umar who plays for Sindh. This season, he had nine games, 28 wickets at 28.7, which isn't the greatest average, but... Uh, there were certain pitches they played at this season, which were absolute graveyards for the Pacers. So there's a bit of mean correction there. Uh, there's Musa Khan, and like Umar is a great new ball bowler. Uh, then you have Musa Khan. Uh, he actually played for Pakistan a bit in 2019 when we uh, went to Australia. He had a really bad debut, but that was a granted. He was 19, played a few first-class games. Uh, this was when Amir and Wahab had stepped aside from Red Bull, so they didn't really have anyone. So they took Nassim and... Uh, Musa off for their debuts. Uh, he had six games, 17 wickets at 29. Again, played at a couple of iffy pitches. Um, he's he's a he's a pretty good reverser of the ball. Uh, I would say after Nasim and Hassan, he's probably 
the best reverser of the ball from what I've heard from people who actually follow the domestic system. I don't watch every single game, but the people who I've spoken to have told me he's really good at it. Uh, the third one says Hisanullah. He's not quite ready yet. He might need another season or two uh, at first class level. He had seven games, 22 wickets at 28.2. Um, now, I think these are three guys you can look at and just be like, you know, you guys need to focus on red ball cricket. We're building you as depth options. They don't They don't necessarily need to walk in. Obviously, your first choice is going to be uh, Shaheen and Nassim. And if Hassan can regain his rhythm, he's that perfect third guy to go along with them. Now, whether that happens or not is a whole other question. He had a good spell, a couple of few good spells in this game. But again, he's still... Uh, you'll have to see how he does in the next domestic uh, season before we can really decide if he's that guy. Um, yeah. But you, you need to look at these guys. You need to like... And you need to keep them with the squad and be like, you know, if anyone gets injured, we know we have these guys sitting behind. We don't need to throw in someone who's played like five first-class games. We have these people who've been playing for a while. They've been performing. They have the skill sets. They have. They can fill in the roles we need. And you need to, most importantly, give players long ropes. You can't play someone for two games and be like, oh, you can't be a test cricketer. Uh, go back to the first-class system. They did that with Muhammad Ali in the England series. They played him, they played him for like two games. Uh and decided, oh no, this guy's not good enough. But you gave him an absolute road to bowl on, as opposed to the pitches he was bowling on at domestic level, which actually provided a bit of assistance. Uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the example you gave for Harisroff is really the perfect example because uh, I think it was Glenn McGraw who some time ago said, you know, when you're getting a fast bowler into Test cricket, he should have bowled three, uh, ideally three to eight thousand balls in domestic cricket before he's made that debut. And then, you know, a few more thousand balls later, he'll be close to his peak. Um, and and obviously, that's there. There will be exceptions. Nasim is an exception because he's just much, much, uh, much higher than you know his age group. Um, so there will there will be exceptions. But for the most part, I think that's something that teams need to plan about, and they've clearly not done that. But the other aspect I'm also curious about is, um, you know, we we talked about Mohammad Abbas and. He was obviously a seam bowler, somebody who would do really, really well in England conditions, which, you know, where there's a little bit of assistance for him and the Duke ball in particular. Um, So my thought is, is there also a lack of thinking of that aspect? Like, okay, well, certain bowlers are going to be suited to Australia. Let's not, you know, spend, you know, run them to the ground when by bowling them in England or or vice versa. Because to your point, like Omesh Adav, I mean, I think he's played one test match in Australia in the last three years. And that was also because of a number of injuries. Otherwise, he only comes in in the subcontinent, which he, he does a great job of. Yeah, I think there's they don't have that level of uh, foresight uh, when they're making these selection decisions. Um now, for example, they gave a de- they not a debut. He was making his comeback, uh, Mir Hamza, and this is a guy who bowls like mid to high one twenties. Can do really well again in a country like England, um, and in the domestic season this year, he played all he played four games. All four of them were in Rawalpindi on a green top, and Rawalpindi is known for to be a pitch that's very highly assistive to pacers. Uh, which we obviously didn't see in the international matches because uh, we decided to get rid of all that grass because our chairman doesn't chairman our ex chairman did not believe in grass uh, doing anything. But so you look at a guy you need to contact, you, like you can look at his stats. He has he had good stats this season over the four games he played, but also four games is a small sample size. 
Um, ever since this new, uh, the formerly new domestic system, they've reinstated the old one now. Uh, we're going to talk about that whole administrative mess, I think, later on. But Mir Hamza was very good pre-2018 when we used to have green tops and Duke's balls in our domestic system. Which actually, which actually made no sense because uh, Pakistan used to play use Duke balls in the domestic system, but then in their actual international matches, even in the UAE, we used to use uh, Kookaburra balls, which never made sense. Like, why would you use one ball in your domestic system and not use it in your home season? That's just counterintuitive. Um, but ever since they moved over to the new domestic system, they were using Kookaburra balls uh, because Wasim Khan, the former CEO, was like, yeah, like, what are you guys doing? This makes no sense. Um his average had had drastically gotten worse. I think he was he headed up to the thirties in in terms of average uh, since then. And yeah, you have again they don't think about these things, and I I don't blame them to an extent. I do blame them, but also you need to think about it this way: when your selector, uh, your former selector, got thrown out two days oh, with two days notice just because the prime minister decided, oh no, this chairman's gone, new chairman in tear apart the constitution, bring back the 2014 constitution. Uh, let's make one of your lowest cricketing IQ people in the country, Shahid Afridi, your chief selector. And it's like, even if you do have a long-term plan, it can get undone overnight. Like the last selector could have had a plan for 10 years, but if he gets removed unilaterally just overnight and someone new comes in, that new guy's going to try and implement a whole new plan and, yeah, it's it's a whole mess. <laughs> yeah, and and I know we were going to talk about the administrative mess, but I feel like this is a perfect point to jump in because at at the end of the day, if there's not a professional setup, it it's not really going to. I mean, think about it from like a politician's perspective. We all say the politician has to perform for you know four or five years, whatever the tenure is, so that he or she can run for re-election. Um, and so many times, you know, they'll they'll make short-sighted decisions just because they get reelected, even if it's bad in the long term. And the selectors would do the same. They would run X player to the ground if it gets them a longer tenure, which which is obviously a, an issue. Uh, but apart from that, I guess I'm also curious, just obviously Ramiz Raza was not getting everything right. Uh, but what are your thoughts about Najam Sethi randomly replacing him? And, uh, you know, Shahid Afridi coming in, which you, it seems like you already have strong thoughts about Shahid Afridi, but, but I'll let you co- comment in more depth. Yeah. Um, if anything I've learned about Pakistan cricketers, every time you start wanting someone to go from a certain position, the next guy appointed just reminds you that, man, at least the, the last guy wasn't that bad. Because <laughs> if, if you look at my Twitter feed, uh, before Ramiz Raja was sacked, I would have like five tweets a day telling, like talking about how stupid Ramiz Raja is and how he needs to get lost. And yesterday I was sitting down looking at the ODI squad and I'm like, you know what? At least he wasn't, at least he didn't impose Shahid Afidi on us as a chief selector. Like, See, the new motto, all of his faults. <laughs> the new motto for Pakistan cricket should be, be careful what you wish for. Pretty much. I, I totally agree. Because... They have overnight. Uh, see the only the only upside I see to Ramiz going is we'll actually have a proper head coach now um, because Ramiz Raja famously said that he doesn't believe in coaches. Um, 
because that guy has this entirely different worldview of cricket that I don't know where he's gotten it from, but he just has it. Uh, which, But it's a bit of a symptom of all the 90s lads who played under Imran Khan. They think they can recreate a second Imran Khan as captain, even though cricket has come so far ahead. The captain does not unilaterally run the team in any con- any top cricketing nation anymore. You have a whole team running behind the scenes, giving that captain the resources they need. But uh, Ramiz Raja decided to go a whole other direction. Um, in terms of Shahid Afridi, all I'm going to say is this is the guy who played half a test match and decided I'm done, I'm retiring. Um, and he made a comeback to test cricket after like, I think six, seven years at that point. Uh, and he was the captain as well. And like after the first innings, he's like, he gets out at playing 18 of seven or something, the most non-test innings ever. And then he comes to the press conference after he's like, yeah, this is my last test match. I'm, I'm quitting. This is the guy you had decide your squad for a test series at home. So if Shahid Afridi, great entertainer, great T20 player. But his cricketing IQ is equivalent to that of those random desi uncles you find at the dinner table talking about how they can do better than XYZ player and how XYZ player shouldn't have played that short and so he's, on. Like, I, I, he's almost, uh, almost following the law, you know, the, the law of numbers where he, he, he seems to be throwing up all the cricketers that are available and, seeing, and hoping that one of them <laughs> works out. That seems to be his strategy. He yeah he named a twenty one uh, player probables list for an ODI series that's taking place at home. Mm-hmm. Now this is my friend's theory, and I totally agree. I didn't agree with it at first, but I think I do now because over the course of the next three days, first they realized that they didn't name Mohammad Asnan, who was like one of their best uh, fifty over bowlers in the in the domestic competition, and just in general, he's like uh, with Shaheen out and Rauf an injury doubt, he's your next best option for fifty over cricket. Um, they realized that they they legitimately forgot. Like thirty minutes after that press release, they they announced Mohammad Hasnain has been added to the list on the PCB. And I'm like, did you legitimately forget a player? Like this is the level of professionalism you have right now. Then everyone was calling for his head for dropping Fakhar and Kostil Shah. Um, and then two days later, we 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 get an update that Fakhar Zaman and Haris Sohail have been added to the squad to provide the captain with more options. Then Khushdar still hasn't made the cut. And then when he announced the squad, uh, he said that, you know, there's this whole practice of dropping players for not performing in one format. Like they will they'll perform well in tests, but they're not performing in T20. So we dropped them from tests. This guy literally dropped Khushdar Shah, who's been one of your most pro- prolific ODI batsmen uh, last year. And he's filled that number six spot that we've been struggling to fill for the last two years. And he drops him just... And the whole reason he dropped him is because he'd had a terrible patch in T20s. So, like, you're saying one thing and you're doing the entire opposite. So, right. again, a lack of professionalism, right? Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not going to let Ramiz Raja go. Like, people now are tweeting at, uh, at people like me and being like, oh, you deserve this. You wanted Ramiz to go. I'm like, is it is it so bad to want someone competent in charge of your right. cricket board? Because the last guy was a YouTuber. This guy is a journalist. I just want Wasim Khan back, a guy who actually knew how to run and run this organization. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, the fact that they they had, you know, infighting and a hostile takeover or whatever Ramiz wanted to call it. But um, 
I I mean I was like that was already a lot, and then I saw Najam Sethi tweet out a table saying how performance <laughs> under each tenure, and I was like, what is going on? This is childish, even even for you know thirty year old me. So I I really don't understand what how that happened. Um, but I guess he's, so, even uh, he's even tweeting out emails like stuff he should be sending out to. Uh, to Jesha in emails is going out on yeah, Twitter. I saw that as well. <laughs> yeah, what are your also what are your thoughts about Sarfraz Ahmed making a comeback? Obviously he's he's done well in this test and even the test before, but do you really think Rizwan needed to be dropped? Um you mentioned, you know, changing his position didn't help, but do you think he had done badly enough to to be dropped? Um now Sarfraz is a bit of a difficult topic for me because I can never I I'm I'm honest about it I can never be objective about that guy because I just have a very strong emotional attachment to him from all the way from the 2010s um always loved the guy when he became captain I was really happy I support Queda Gladiators in the PSL I just I chose them just because he was their captain in 2016 um so it's hard for me to be objective about his selection but if I'm if I'm being totally honest it shouldn't have happened now this is where like the logical side of me and the emotional side of me was struggling because when he scored all those runs, I'm like, yes, Sef. And like, I literally call him Sefi by, I don't even call him Sefraz. I'm like, Sefi by your captain, stuff like that. Like, that's how I refer to him. He's just that guy for me. Um, it's him. And then there's Hassan Ali. These are the few players I can't be too logical about. Like, I'll try, but the emotions do come through. So I was really happy on one side, but on the other side, I'm like, wait, we're going to Australia next year. These guys are going to look at all of these runs and take him to Australia. This is not looking good. So, yeah, um, in the short term, it's fine. I, I I, still think Rizwan was unfairly dropped, especially in a country like Pakistan where you play about 10 tests a year. You don't play those many tests. Uh, we looked at uh, Barber's stats. I think he was on top of the, of the runs table. If you look at the matches column, like the number of matches he's played compared to the rest of people on that list is just like, it's hilariously low. Like a player like Babar Azam should be playing at least double the amount of test matches he actually does every year. So I don't think you can. I think you need to give your players a bit more leeway in that sense. Um, Rizwan in 2020 and 21 was, uh, and even 19, I think all three of these years, uh, he was averaging above 40. Um, now, I I don't have the correct metric numbers up, but I think it was somewhere around or above 40. Um, so to have one lean patch I think, and dropping him is very harsh. Part of it was pandering to that media narrative. Now, th- this is what you get when you get someone like Ashad Afridi as your chief selector, right? Um, he pretty much, like, there have been sources in the PCB who've pretty much admitted that uh, they did include him uh, due to pressure from the the local Karachi media uh, because uh, Sarfraz obviously is a Karachi boy, born and bred played all of his cricket there. Now, th- this this pressure doesn't necessarily come from uh, Sarfraz himself because he isn't that kind of character. Um, if anything, he when he was captain, he did try to eliminate a lot of this. Um, and the boys who play in the team still really do look up to him. Like, if you look at Rizwan, how how he's been responding to Sarfraz's innings, there's clearly no bad, bad blood over there. But the media does definitely push that, uh, that narrative in favor of uh, Sarfraz, and they have been doing it ever since he got removed from his captaincy. Um, you would, you uh, As a Sarfaraz fan, I would like him to be a bit more vocal about that and try to shut it down, but he hasn't done it so far. So that's a bit of an iffy situation. 
uh, amongst the fan base. It's something that's often debated. It was being debated even today um, on Twitter. But I think so. I think Rizwan needs to be back. For at the most, you might be you might persist with Sarfraz uh, in Sri Lanka in June in, in June or July because obviously against uh, his game against Spin is going to be useful. But I would still bring Rizwan back regardless. I don't think it's worth that short-term gain right now. You need to make some long-term decisions. Um, and Rizwan is, I would say, your best batch batter after Babar and tests. So to drop him is kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I think, I don't think it's justified pretty much. One of the other things I'm curious about is spin. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, in UAE, you had Yasser Shah, who was, was doing really well. Um, he lost his form, uh, but really, it's been it's been a tough time, tough time for Pakistan trying to find a replacement. I know Abrar Ahmed has recently started taking wickets and um, you know caught attention, but I guess is there a lack of t- spin talent in the domestic structure? And again, I I think this is probably related to the pitches as well because it seems like there's. Rahul Pindi, at least in domestic cricket, seems to be a pace-friendly pitch and the others seem to be pretty batting-friendly. So is that also probably another reason for the lack of a number of you know good quality spinners? Yeah, 100%. Um, the pitches, not just right now. If you look at the lack of spinners in Pakistan, you can trace it all the way back to the early 2000s um, when our favorite YouTube chairman was... the He was the chairman or the CEO. I can't remember which one he was. Uh, Ramiz Raja, um, he basically rolled out this whole concept of green top wickets in our domestic system. And what followed was throughout the 20, like if you notice Pakistan throughout the 2010s, we were struggling to produce pacers. Now those green top wickets basically incentivized a lot of medium pacers coming through. So you'd have all these bowlers bowling 120s, uh, low 130s. And in turn, this also kind of destroyed your spin, spin stock as well. Um, and also, obviously, there was that aspect of where in the 2010s, there was a lot of crackdown on bowling actions as well. Um, and you had a couple of spinners drop out through that. But majority of the blame does lie with the pitches. You weren't producing any spinners. Now, this new domestic system, you are seeing a few come through. Um, again, pitches are an issue, as you said. Like They're either completely pace-friendly or they're completely flat. There's like no... There's no middle ground. The twenty the twenty twenty season was the one where you had a lot of balance between ball and bat. That's the season I, I that most cricketing circles in Pakistan give the most credibility because you had an even contest throughout that season. Um, but apart from that, then I, then immediately after that season, Ramiz Raja came in and he did his thing again. <laughs> so, but. Uh, you do have a couple of options right now in the in the spin department. You don't have a lot. I'm not going to say you have a lot. You have like three to four pretty much to choose from. So if you have an injury or two, again, you're back to square one. Uh, Zafar Gohar, he's someone I would say, I think he's easily the best spinner on the circuit. Uh, slow, he's a left-arm spinner. Um, had a great... He's, he's played... Uh, he played the county season this year. Had an amazing season. Was benched for... Uh, was not playing for a bit in the, in the Pakistani domestic season this season. Um, but the moment he came back, he had like, he had like, I think 15, 16 wickets within the span of two, two games, three games. So he's easily our best bowler on the, on the circuit, but the former chief selector was not a fan for him for what reason, for whatsoever reason. 
And this stems back to your you when you pointed out, right? Like we play players where they shouldn't be played. Uh Zuffer actually got his debut in New Zealand in uh in late 2020. And that was on a green top where obviously he had zero assistance, so he had very subpar figures. And then the very next series, he was dropped. Norman Ali came in, uh, got a five for Again, another short-sighted decision should have been Zafar. I think he would have gotten the same return on the pitch that was on that on on that pitch in uh, Karachi. Um, but yeah, we we took uh, Noman for that short-term kin. Obviously, Noman had a bit of a purple patch, and he's not done anything since. Uh, hopefully, Zafar makes a figures into the plans for the series in Sri Lanka. Um, I think there's a chance he might get the call up. Um, other than that, you have Mubassar Khan, who was uh, the second highest uh, wicket taker in terms of the spinners uh, after Abrad Ahmed this season. He's an off spinner. He's actually an all rounder. He bats as well. So he's someone who I thought would have been considered for this series, considering the amount of left handers New Zealand have. Um, and one for the future is Mehran Mumtaz. He's another uh, left arm spinner. He's He has a long ways to go, though, maybe two to three seasons. Um, but yeah, they're scarce, scarce uh, spin stocks. Uh, the pitches need to be worked out. You need to figure out what you're doing with these pitches because clearly they're not, otherwise there's no way you're going to produce more uh, and you're going to run into the same issue maybe in three to four years' time. Yeah, and, and the pitches issue almost reminds me of England. You know, until they were, until Joe Root was captain and they were losing tests, there was all this talk about how, you know, England's structure is terrible, the pitches are terrible, which, you know, to your point, it promotes these 120 mile, um, you know, 120 kilometer bowlers, which who can seem a lot, take a lot of domestic wickets, but when they get to Australia, when they get to India, they aren't as effective or as, um, you know, they don't have the variety to be effective. Um, so I know England have gone a completely different way in trying to resolve that by just batting out oppositions. But um, really that's, that's something, it, and it's surprising also because we've just had uh, you know, what some people call the pace bowling pandemic, where the pitches were extremely friendly. And we saw some really interesting games where, you know, I, I there were so many test matches I remember where I didn't want to turn off the TV for a single ball. So it's even more surprising that, you know, cricket has come back to Pakistan after a break and they've chosen not very exciting pitches when they already have, you know, uh, pretty decent fast bowling talents to go with. Um, so yeah, that that's definitely a question that will, you know, I'm sure all fans are scratching their heads about, and no idea if uh, this particular administration is going to change it, but one can only hope. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, when you look at pitches, when when Test cricket came back to Pakistan in 2019, you had the Sri Lankan series where the where Nasim Shah got uh, uh, did really well, and like. That that pitch was assistive to pacers in Pindi. Pindi and Pindi is like your is Pakistan's best pitch for pacers. But every but when Australia came and England came, they decided to completely turn it into a graveyard. Uh, if you look at the trajectory here, so 2019 against Sri Lanka, and then you had I think you had Bangladesh come through as well. Decent decent pitches across both. South Africa again really good pitches. Uh, Hassan Ali got a fifer in the in the game in Pindi. Um, but then when Ramiz came in. We had that Australian series, then the England series, then the New Zealand series, and you've seen that we've gone a completely different direction. So I think the issue here lies is with your administration trying to meddle in the pitches, and that's not their job. Your job is to appoint someone competent enough 
to get your curators with the times, teach them how to curate a good pitch, and they know how. To, and like, and they've done it before. They've done it in 2019. They did it in 2020. It's just recently that this has gone so south. Um, and I'm not saying it's perfect. Like there is a lot of work to be done on our curators, because uh, especially at domestic level, apart from like two or three venues, a lot of the a lot of the pitches are pretty flat. So there is work to be done. But that that uh, effort needs to be put into, you need to invest resources, you need to invest your money into getting those curators up to speed, getting them the latest equipment, getting using the latest techniques uh, instead of wasting money on vanity projects. Like Ramiz Raja, in the middle of the Australian test series, he got some curator from Sydney and he's like, oh, he's going to help now. I'm like, what's he going to do in three days? He's not going to change your entire pitch science over the course of three days. He tried to get drop-in pitches now, in a country like Pakistan, drop-in pitches aren't practical. Like, that's just the long and short of it. Um, if you can't take care of regular pitches, how are you going to take care of drop-in pitches? Because those that takes even more money. And, like, this is all money that can go into uh, actually fixing the problem. But the issue here is every chairman who comes in knows he has, like, a rope of maybe two or three years. So they keep trying to do make moves that like our popular moves and are going to get them like uh, credit with the fans. Like, you know, oh, look, I did this. This is so flashy. This is so brand new. This is like, no one's trying to actually do something of substance. They're trying to do something that can sort of uh, uplift their reputation. And I think this issue is going to keep going on until uh, the PCB's governing structure is figured out. Because as long as your prime minister is selecting who the chairman is, this is just going to be a merry-go-round. We keep going on every three to four years. You know, um, one other question that I have for you, because you might be better placed to answer this uh, as someone who follows Pakistan cricket very closely. Um, the one thing that I've noticed, the media um, in Pakistan cricket seems to have an outsized influence. Like you have a former journalist at the helm of Pakistan cricket now, but even like at some of the press conferences, some of these questions that are thrown to cricketers, it, it's like, how are you able to ask these questions? Like, is is there something that we're missing? Like, uh, f- uh, from the outside, is there like an outsized influence that the media has in Pakistan cricket? Yeah, the media has a huge influence, and um, it's sort of like the established the the cricketing establishment has allowed them to get to this level of you know. Um, Wasim Khan talked about this on the Jared Kimber podcast. Uh, when he did his uh, exit interview episode after he left the CEO position at the PCB. And Wasim was the first one who really tried to challenge the status quo. Uh, he refused to give interviews to certain journalists. He was sort of black blocking out some of them from press conferences. But now what Wasim learned the hard way, unfortunately, and I feel really bad for him because what he did was what needed to be done decades ago. And that's putting these journalists in check and like, uh, what ha- what in turn happened to him was a whole media agenda starting against him, uh, exposing his salary, exposing his to the to the point that they that the journalists exposed what his address was, where his kids studied. It was it was a whole mess. And like when Ramiz came in, he tried to pander up to the to the journalists, where he's like, you know, Ramiz did uh, did blacklist a couple of journalists. Uh, one of the most notorious ones being Shoaib Jat, who is back in the pressers now, and you will see him usually asking the worst question at every presser. <laughs> Um, but any journalist you try to block, this happened the most at Wasim's time. It happened with Ramiz as well, with a few journalists he didn't get along with. Um, and now there's this, uh, the one I talked about, Shwebjad, Babar Azam's not been answering his uh, 
his uh, questions at the last two pressers. And I don't blame him because he's like the type of questions these guys ask, like, you know, you're supposed to, I, I understand everyone's freedom of questioning and expression, but it needs to be, there needs to be a certain level of respect shown to your cricketers. These are human right. beings at the end of the day. But um, now he's running an agenda. It's like, why is Babar Azam not answering my questions? He posts the whole video on Twitter today. He's like, I will make sure he answers my question at the next presser. Otherwise, this is not right. This is not the right way to go about it. And now with Najam Sethi in, I think these guys are going to go even more uh, haywire because uh, the, the, the last bit of resistance there was to these guys is uh, going to be gone out the window. And, and the sad part there is the fact that Wasim Khan was an outsider. Uh, and, you know, so he, he brought an outsider's perspective, you know, he came from England and he brought that and tried to bring professionalism. And even he was unsuccessful because, again, like the, he didn't he didn't care to, you know, cozy up with the media. And and so uh, somebody like that with the right intentions, with the right mindset, uh, professionalism in mind, couldn't succeed. So that's that's definitely a worrying sign. Yeah. Yeah. And when I look at it, like if you listen to his uh, uh, his interview with uh, Jared, I would highly recommend it. I don't see any any professional individual hearing his experience and wanting to work with the BCB going forward, like simple as that. Um, and I'm some, and obviously it hurts me to say it because I want Pakistan cricket to get the very best personnel. But when you have such a high level of political involvement at every level of the game, and you have these ex cricketers waiting around like sharks, uh, trying to pounce on you for any mistake you make, you have the media waiting to there to get to you. You're not. You're, it's simple as that. Like anyone uh, uh, committing to the PCB, even if they sign a three-year contract, they're like, "Oh, what if the government changes in the next two years? What happens to my contract? I'm going to be gone because the next prime minister is going to want someone else in charge." So I think the solution here lies is as long as the prime minister is the patron in chief of the cricket board, you're not going to see professionalism come into it. Um, Pakistan cricket, whatever it has won, is in spite of its structure. It's only right. because of the talent that comes. It's just because of the talent that comes out of this country. Uh, the players are not given any resources to succeed. They're they're just they're just doing what they're doing off talent and and like I, I I sympathize with them. Obviously, there are certain players I will always be critical of, but I always sympathize with the players in the sense that they have this whole administrative uh, gong show to deal with all the time. You know, speaking of political involvement, um, you know, apart from the whole Ramiz Raja versus Najam Sethi sideshow, there seems to be a new one on the horizon, Sethi versus Jay Shah. Uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, Jay Shah myself, but, you know, especially given that, you know, we're talking about the Asia Cup, the next edition of Asia Cup, and the schedule is out, but there's still some uncertainty. And I know that Ramiz Raja made some noises last, when he was still the chief about, well, we may not go to India to play the World Cup if they don't play the Asia Cup here. Uh, so what do you make of the whole, um, I guess, India versus Pakistan? I'm, t- I'm talking about the political part of it, the uh, the fight over who, uh, whether they will come to play here and the quid pro quo. Uh, do you think that's going to change with Sethi? Do you think, uh, what is your take on the whole, you know, India should come and play in Pakistan so that Pakistan will play in India for the World Cup. See, I think uh, Ramiz making that statement was plain just, uh, it was just point scoring with the public, right? Like, he knows that if I say something like this, the public is going to think I'm some strong guy making a strong statement. A statesman, but, yeah. But if we're being totally realistic, um, 
you're not skipping an ICC Cricket World Cup. No matter what no matter what India decides in terms of touring Pakistan, that's not going to have an implication on Pakistan's participation in the World Cup because it's a World Cup. It's an ICC tournament. There's there's no way you skip it. Um, if anything, it incentivizes you even more. Like, oh, they're not touring us. Okay, let's go to their country and try to win this. Uh, yeah. Could could be one angle to look at it. Um, I think the political involvement, the political interference is very unfortunate. Um, I think I can speak for a lot of Pakistani fans where we personally feel very isolated as a cricketing nation where it's like, you know, we've worked really hard to get cricket back. A lot There was right. an unfortunate incident that happened. We've worked hard to get it back. And we want to see India and Pakistan, right? Like, I, I want to see Virat Kohli playing at the NSK. I want to see Rohit Sharma playing. Um and I'm sure there's a similar sentiment over in India as well. Like, and we've we've been we've been touring more often. Obviously, we've been there for a couple of world tournaments uh, over the last couple of years. Okay. Um, I don't. I think. Uh, I think the tone will change. Like, eventually, uh, Najam Sethi, when he did come in, did say that he's going to decide how to deal with it. But he's he's basically taken what uh, Ramiz has done and cranked it up somehow. I did not know that was possible. Um, I personally think this Twitter feud is very immature. Like, yes, you should deal with it. You should go to the ACC and be like, you awarded us the hosting rights. You need to come. Like, simple as that. Like, you can't, you you, you need to set some, like, we do need to take some sort of a stand because obviously, like, if we just cave in here, it's just going to give any other, any, any time in the future because the Champions Trophy is happening in Pakistan in 2025. You don't want to get to a situation where that comes along. And then Jesha is once again, once again, like, oh, we we're not going. Um, you need to you need to set a standard and get in, somehow get India to come in twenty twenty three. But you don't need to do it over Twitter. You're not fifteen year old high schoolers. This is these are two professional organizations. Sit in a meeting, schedule a meeting, talk to each other, figure something out. Yeah, this is. I, uh... I, I think I think cricket needs to be prioritized. I think. If there's anything left between India and Pakistan, it is cricket, and you need to make sure that right. you can get you can get these teams together. No, I completely agree. Uh, it almost feels like uh, this is Najam Sethi's version of basketball off the field. <laughs> Go for broke and see what happens. Um, yeah. But uh, also, I want to end by kind of like trying to find some optimism here. We, we've talked a lot about all the drama off the field, Pakistan's struggles on it. Um, but as a Pakistan cricket fan and looking ahead, are there any cause, is there a cause for optimism for things to improve in terms of administration as much as, you know, we've uh, talked about all the struggles. Uh, is there a cause for optimism? Because, you know, it, from, from our conversation, I'm getting the uh, sense that Pakistan has the players. You have the batters, the bowlers, you have, you know, the keepers, you have all the players to do well. Ultimately, it seems like the problem is with man management, either the captaincy or team management. Uh, you had a coach in Saklain who for the longest time seems like he's purely going off vibes more than <laughs> any kind of cricketing uh, intelligence. And then now you have the whole, you know, the uh, administrative mess. But as a fan, um, is there anything that you can point to and say, well, there is reason for optimism going forward? Yeah, I 
totally believe there is. Obviously, this last hour was me getting everything out of my system that I haven't been able to <laughs> over the last because over the last two weeks, it was therapy basically. Because over the last two weeks, I've not had any like platform to like talk about this and just get it all out. But when I look at see Pakistan and red ball cricket, the the hard reality of it is that our talent pool is not quite there. It'll take a while. Uh, test cricket, forget it for the next two years at least. Maybe think about the next cycle after that. But white ball cricket, I will, I, I say this with my chest, like this is hands down the most talented white ball talent pool Pakistan's had since the early 2000s or maybe like the late 90s. You have, and this is where I think there's cause to be optimistic in terms of talent. Now, the good thing about this whole Afridi circus is that he's made it clear that he's only here for these two tours. And he somehow thinks he's going to make two teams for Pakistan to choose from across two tours. I don't know what goes through that guy's head. Um, but he's going to be gone after this. We're going to get a... I know I know for sure they're hiring a foreign coaching staff, which will be a good move. Um, as long as they don't try to... Now, there might be a captaincy change uh, in white ball cricket, at least in T20s maybe. And the the... the the no-brainer there is Shadab Khan. If that happens, that's fine because he's the he is perfectly equipped. But if they try to go out of the box and choose someone else, that's going to open a whole other can of worms, which I don't think they should. As long as they get a good, competent coach in and a good chief selector. Now, I'm not going to like no no chief selector is going to be perfect. There's always going to be a chief selector. If he selects a squad of 15, there's going to be three players no one wants in there. But even if he can get 12 players right, there's something to work with, right? Right. Pakistan's ODI team before this recent selection was perfectly set except for the number five role, which we were trying to figure out. You had Fakhar, Imam, Babur, Rizwan. You didn't have a number five yet. Maybe it was Aga Salman. They were trying to figure that one out. You had Koshdil at six, Shadab, Nawaz, uh, Naseem, Rauf, and Shaheen. That's, by all accounts, a very competitive team. Especially going to India, I think those are conditions Pakistan should back themselves to at least get to the semis at the bare minimum. And obviously from the semis, it's anyone's game. Like you can't really predict what happens at that point. Um, Pakistani fans should be optimistic about the World Cup coming up this year and the T20 World Cup next year with the very large caveat of who the chief selector and the coaches are. Because the talent is right there. It's staring you in the face. You just need to use it correctly right well said and uh i think it as much as pakistan has been entertaining both on and off the field for different reasons uh i hope i genuinely hope that 2023 will be a return to form for the right reasons and like you said i really expect uh, a lot of them especially in the 50 over world cup um and i want to thank you so much for your time today i feel like we could have talked a lot more you know i personally would have wanted to talk about the PSL and even like women's cricket in Pakistan, but we'll probably keep that for a later time. Uh, and for our listeners, I do want to point out that Asad has his uh, a podcast that you can listen to and also watch on YouTube. It's the Covered Drive podcast. And also you can follow him on Twitter at Covered Drive Crick. So Asad, thank you once again for your time. And uh, I hope you will come back again. My pleasure. It was great speaking to you guys. Thank you for listening to an episode of The Last Wicket. Do check out other episodes on your podcast app of choice. 
or at thelastwicket.com. This podcast is a Cricket Guys production featuring your hosts, Benny and Mike. And if you enjoy this podcast, do let a friend know, rate and subscribe on your platform of choice. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening. And from all of us here at The Last Wicket, stay safe and stay healthy.